Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're new to the show, please subscribe to our dedicated feed, which you can find by searching for Dolby on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Links for all of those, as well as for our RSS feed and our new and improved website, are located in the show notes. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, it's in the description below. This week, we're going back to the Sundance Film Festival, and I am really thrilled to be in conversation this week with two filmmakers who received this year's Dolby Institute Fellowship Award. I'm talking about Rebecca Hall, who's making her feature film uh, directorial debut with the amazing new movie, Passing, and also Natalia Almada, who has directed an extraordinary new documentary called Users. As I said, both of these films won the Dolby Institute Fellowship, and that gives the directors access to Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos to finish their films. So in this week's episode, we're gonna talk about these movies and how these artists were inspired uh, to make their films and what called out to them about these stories that needed to be told at this time and how they used the technology to uh, bring these films to an audience. We were able to record this episode just a few days before each of the movies made its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. So I wanna call out some late breaking news regarding both movies uh, to, um, uh, for you to keep in mind as you listen to the episode. Passing, Rebecca Hall's movie, was acquired after the festival by Netflix and a really big deal. So we're thrilled that the movie will be coming to Netflix at some point in Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos, and you'll be able to experience the film there. Also, Natalia Almada, uh, we're thrilled. She won the jury prize for best direction of a documentary film at Sundance for her film users. So we uh, were thrilled to be in partnership with these amazing artists and to do uh, our part to help bring these movies to the screen. So enjoy the episode. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, uh, which is a program of Dolby Laboratories. It's our outreach initiative to uh, emerging filmmakers and content creators. And uh, I'm really thrilled to be here doing this conversation uh, with Sundance. Uh, and we're here today talking with the two recipients of this year's Dolby Institute Fellowship. Uh, award, two really fantastic movies that have a lot in common, but also could not be more different um, from each other. Um, first up, we have uh, Passing, which is written and directed by Rebecca Hall. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Uh, and, and, then, and then we have Users, which is, I, I believe, uh, written, directed, shot, edited, and narrated by Natalia Almada. Na Na Natalia, did I miss anything that you did on, on the film? I didn't shoot it. It was shot by my brother-in-law. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Um, well, I'm really thrilled to be in conversation with the both of you. I, I just want to acknowledge, like, in, in normal times, we would be having this conversation uh, at Sundance in front of a live audience after the premieres of your film. And and and. and uh, in honor of that, I am wearing my Sundance flannel, um, even though it's <laughs> even though it's seventy degrees in Los Angeles today. It would probably be a lot colder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fooling myself. Yes, yes. So before we get started, I, I just uh, want to say uh, uh, just to explain a little bit about the Dolby Institute Fellowship. It's a program that we started. Gosh, now seven or eight years ago with Sundance, and the idea basically is that we're looking for movies that are 
really doing something interesting and unique and noteworthy in terms of using sound and image for storytelling. But, you know, we're all working at, uh, you know, in, in the indie, indie film world, uh, and there are always resource challenges and budget challenges. And, and uh, we're looking for movies that are doing something really interesting, but uh, maybe the budget can't really support the vision of the filmmaker. So we come in with a direct post-production grant and that gives access to Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos technology uh, for completing these films. So both uh, passing and users received the Dolby Institute Fellowship this year. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that and kind of what that was able, what, what that allowed both of you to do uh, with your films. But I, I really wanted to kind of just dive right in and start talking about, you know, this is uh, on, on our program. We talk a lot about how artists use technology for storytelling. Um, and I really wanted to kick off by just kind of focusing on the first 10 minutes of the, of, for the, of the film for each of you for passing and for, for users. Um, that is such a critical time uh, for a filmmaker because that's, that's, you know, the audience is obviously encountering the film uh, and and that's your opportunity to kind of explain the cinematic rules of the road and the language that you're going to use to tell the story. And both of you make incredibly strong choices about um, lighting, cinematography, sound design that you establish that vocabulary in the first 10 minutes. So I'd love for the, each of you just to just to explain a little bit about what's happening in that first 10 minutes and what you felt like you had to accomplish and how you did it. Well, for me, it's never happened before that... Um for me, the opening shot of the film is actually not the opening shot of the film, but the second shot that is a, a shot of my baby when he was three months old in a smart crib was actually the first thing we shot. And it has always been right there in the film. And then it was much later that um, Dave, who's, who's my partner and who did the sound design, um, thought of putting this voice kind of as a, I know we call it, the beginning, very beginning of the film and then the credit and then this is what I consider the first shot. Um, but I think what you had said is absolutely right, that you're trying to kind of establish the terms um, of the film, both you know formally and story-wise, and kind of let the audience know kind of what the rules of the game are. Um, but for me, oddly in this film, the first two shots, which are the shot of this baby in the crib, and then there's a shot of the ocean, were from our very first shoot, very beginning, and they've always been there. And that's never happened. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I it's, it's similarly, I guess. It's a I suppose I always conceived at the beginning pretty pretty much how it is. Um it was always very important to me to try and somebody said to me once and I can't remember who it is and I wish I could remember because it's really valuable uh, advice that nobody really pays attention to the first 3 minutes of a movie anyway. Um, and you sort of have to warm them up into it. Yeah. And I, and I, I was thinking about this when I, I storyboarded the whole movie myself, and just thought about a lot of the sort of how to introduce everybody to not only a world that is 1920s, but is black and white, is conceptual, has a certain abstraction, um, and it's a story that's very ambiguous and subtextual so it was very important to me that people listen to the movie I think ironically it's a lot easier to uh it's 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 complex to make a quiet movie and I really wanted it to be quiet and I wanted to 
encourage people in the first three minutes to understand that they were going to be asked quite a lot as viewers, that they were going to have to pay attention. So the idea behind the feet and walking past and this sort of gradual immersion into this world, not only symbolically is sort of the idea of lives just passing through, for want of a better word, uh, no pun intended, but also just snippets of conversation, like these things that you've got to, you've got to lean forward and, and pay attention. So I, I really, I really fixated on the first 10 minutes of the sound, especially. Um, it, it was a real obsession actually. <laughs> I, yeah, I can tell. Um, and, and I just want to say like, uh, one of the, one of the reasons I was so excited about having this conversation with the two of you, um, obviously you both won this fellowship uh, that recognized, you know, you, that you were doing something interesting and unique and distinctive with your films. Um, and then there's, on the surface of it, they couldn't be more different from each other. Rebecca, you've made a, a narrative film that's exploring, you know, race issues in America in the 1920s that you shot in black and white with a, if not a four by three aspect ratio, a pretty square um, it's four uh, three. visual. It is four three. It's on Academy standards, you know, old old Hollywood standards. Yeah, and I want to get, I want to ask you why, you know, sort of yeah. what, what what drove that choice. But and then Natalia, you've made a documentary. Um, which is full two, three, five widescreen, incredibly saturated colors, um, really bold, uh, uh, you know, choices, especially uh, uh, for a documentary film, but they both use sound incredibly creatively. Um, and so uh, it, th there's just so much for us to kind of dive into and talk about. But Rebecca, I was really glad that you brought up what you were very mindfully trying to do in that first opening sequence, because the, the way you open the film and that sort of like the, the images are indistinct and hazy and you see shapes kind of moving and then snippets of conversations and then kind of clarity emerges uh, from that. And then I think pretty immediately um, uh, within that first 10 minutes, we find ourselves in the Drayton Hotel. Mm with Irene and and I noticed right away that you're doing you know the sound the treatment of sound in the Drayton Hotel sequence is really distinctive mm -hmm. for me and it and it and it told me you know as an audience member it kind of you know that was a cue for me to like pay attention because something is slightly something is is odd here and I realized you know the 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 tones are muted but I could hear Irene's breathing very clearly. Um, and interestingly enough, breathing, I found to be a recurring metaphor for both of you in, in your films. But, you know, breathing, and specifically Irene's breathing, uh, Rebecca, is something that you come back to again and again and passing it's a recurring element. And for me, uh, you know, it, that that centers the audience and Irene's experience of what the story is. Mm -hmm. And it tells me that it tells me that the point of view for the sound is not objective, but it's subjective. It's we're really getting her experience. So can you talk a little bit about that and sort of what drove that choice and how you arrived at it? Yeah, I think you said it really eloquently, actually. I don't really, I, it's, uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, this story is sort of, you know, there's not a lot of plots and everything rides on understanding this, specifically Irene's inner journey through the narrative. And I think it, the story in the, in the book is certainly weaves very deftly between an objective and a subjective point of view. So it was, I, I thought a lot about how to find ways to make you feel very much with her, very much in her experience, and then 
at choice moments to take you out of that and look at her and in a sense, judge her. Um, because as the film progresses, you realize that she's, she's actually the character that bears the most scrutiny because maybe the thing that she, maybe she's passing in a way too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that scene that you're talking about was very particular because I, I had to find a way to try and inject a certain amount of tension without telling anyone what was actually going on. And there's a certain amount of, you know, you, you can, you can assume that the audience understands certain things about the 1920s, um, segregated New York. You can assume that people take Tessa Thompson to be a black woman. So there is a certain amount of what is she doing in this space? But also within that, I wanted to create this sort of heightened, odd, different world. Because in a sense, the only time that you're in what we started to term white world is at the beginning of the movie, which is kind of, you know, it's, it is overexposed and it is bright and it just looks, it should look moneyed. And the sound, even though we've just been outside in a place where somebody has passed out on the street because it's so hot and because the industry of New York is so oppressive and the sounds of the street are too much, the moment that she drifts into this moneyed white space, it becomes like this tranquil oasis. And I think to really make you feel that, you've got to sort of contrast the soundscape so that when she goes in there, it's almost like a mirage. You know, there's like the tink. I was obsessed with the tinkle of wind chime somewhere and, you know, like the way that noise and voices carry on the wind. So, and, and that was something that I, you know, thanks to you actually had an enormous opportunity to fiddle with because I was suddenly able to weave between, you know, wait, is she really able to hear what they're saying or is this just what she's tuning into versus what, you know... And then other times it, she can't possibly hear that. And yet that, so that sound suddenly feels very close. Whereas this one that should feel very close sounds very far away. Um, and that was just a joy because that's how you achieve that perspective between the balance between subjective and objective. Right. Right. I think, you know, I, I really love the way you play with um, Tessa Thompson's character, Irene's um, her experience of the world. There, there are a couple of, um, I also want to talk, there's so much I want to talk about. The, 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 the power of repetition, you use that so effectively in the film. And there are a couple of scenes where, you know, Irene is taking a nap at home. And those are really powerful sound sequences because you start to do things like the alarm clock and the doorbell mm-hmm. and the telephone are way louder yeah. than, than they would be if you were treating them naturalistically. But again, you're using sound to communicate to the audience her experience of her space in that world in a really effective way. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a complicated thing to chart someone's emotional breakdown that she's not aware of, you know? It's <laughs> like deciding when the audience can become aware that she's having a sort of breakdown and when they can think that she's completely in control and everyone else around her is, you know. You know, and it, I think that... For me, she's very, she's, it's, it's about layers of repression, actually, and how, you know, in a certainly racist society, how your identity is defined by others. It becomes contextualized. So all of that sort of who you are becomes sort of repressed. And there's a very, she has a very complex relationship with who she is sexually, as a woman, as a mother, you know, as a wife, so many different things. And sort of, 
I suppose to signal this, the cycle, the, the complexity of that sort of psychology, it had, it had to be through these sorts of things where things, noises become grating for her, you know, right. painful. Right. Natalia, I, want, I wanted to ask, I'm sorry, did you have a comment? I did have a question. <laughs> um, Please, yeah. Because well, I got to listen to it with the headphones on. So I was just curious, like in the space, are those sounds kind of around you differently or are they still kind of? Yeah, we, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, uh, we place them, we place them all over the place and it, and it works fantastically. I hope that some people get to see it in the yeah. <laughs> next, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like, you know, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we, we placed all that. So we, the, the thing that really excited me, honestly, was placing the children above her head. So it really felt like a, like thumping down the top of her brain. Um, it was, yeah, that was really so fun. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, Rebecca, because one of the notes that I had is like how alive that house is and, yeah. and how well, there's no, there's no score really. There's no, you know, I didn't, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, um, allergic to too much school in something like this, that's sort of like delicate and also too much, you know, it's I mean, it, it's so delicate that every sound becomes significant, you know, every bird outside and every car horn, you know, I get sort of, strangely obsessed with how many times you hear the traffic noise outside. Not now. <laughs> well, I want to ask you. I feel like, Go ahead, the, Natalia. like it didn't have a score that kind of ran through, but the, those musical moments felt really important. Oh, yes. like structure and the pacing and the feeling of the film. This sort of like chapter it. I mean, I sort of, I knew exactly where I needed it. And it's funny, that piece of music is, a, is an existing piece of music. It was recorded in the 60s by an Ethiopian pianist called Emahoy Sege. And it's, uh, an aston it's called Homeless Wanderer, funnily enough. And I had it in my, I played it while I wrote the last three drafts of the script, maybe. You know, so it's always been with me, that piece of music. And that to me was, that to me was not, it was, I, it's sort of, it's like, it feels like Claire is the one that has a theme tune. If anyone gets a theme tune in this, it's Claire. But it gets stuck in Irene's head and it's on a loop and it never resolves. So that's how I thought of it. So I was like, I can only use it in those moments. I feel I'm talking way too much. I'm going to hand it No, no, no. It's really interesting to hear you say that because it almost like becomes, as, as Irene becomes more and more kind of distressed and obsessed almost with Claire, the no. music that that little that little yeah. song piece becomes no, a it's, it's very it's very sort of it, it's a it's a astonishing piece of music because it's entirely repetitive and yeah. very sort of it, it's almost difficult to listen to it's so beautiful but also it's sort of it, it's borderline grating in its repetition and its lack it's like absolute insistence not to resolve and I thought about it always is. It's not score, it's, it's Claire's song that's stuck in Irene's head. And there's, apart from that, there will be no score, apart from this other melody that's real, that's on the streets opposite where Irene lives. And it's a guy who's learning to play the trumpet and he's trying to find his voice. So then it became this sort of, that's, in a way, that's Irene's theme. Like, she doesn't know who she is. She's the, the trumpet player working out what she sounds like, what she should sound like. And by the end of the film, the melody of the trumpet player starts to just take on notes and phrases that are the same as Homeless Wanderer. Um, but that was an idea that I had a, a long time ago and sort of stuck, actually. It was always like that was the sort of the philosophy of the music in the movie for me. I want to I take a few minutes and just kind of 
dig a little deeper into that because you're, you're both using music in very interesting, distinctive ways. Natalia, you've got, um, you've got an amazing score, which is performed so beautifully by the Kronos Quartet. And, uh, in, 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 just to, just to, in, in disclosure, a couple of times, Natalia, you, you texted me, uh, pictures of the Atmos microphone, uh, layout from the Skywalker sound scoring, scoring stage where they place the microphones to capture the Kronos Quartet. So listening to that score in Atmos is going to be pretty spectacular when people have the chance to do that. But, um, you know, you, I, the music in your end users in your film is so, evocative and you've it's something unusual you you have the same artist who provided both the sound design and the musical score which is very which is very unusual so can you talk a little bit about that and using those two tools sure it's uh dave surf who's also my husband so we work <laughs> together uh, and it's our children so it's a very kind of family project um so dave uh the way we work he also, he like worked at Apple before on Final Cut Pro and he's worked with Walter Merge who comes from a tradition of like working with sound really as you edit. So we really kind of collaborate in that way. And he's sound designing and composing on the computer from the very, very beginning. And so we'd always talked about the sound conceptually in terms of how it would reflect, you know, this kind of world between the artificial or the um, technological and the natural world or the human. So, he just kind of built it as we went. And then what was very interesting is the opportunity to work with Kronos was kind of presented to us. Um, and he hadn't scored the whole film thinking about a quartet. And so when we went to record with Kronos, it was very interesting process to try to translate that score that had been done on a computer, which we always hoped would be eventually done by humans and instruments, but um, to turn it into music that a quartet could perform. And one of, so one of the things we had to do was a lot of layering. And what was interesting was Leslie Ann, the engineer had explained to me that we'll always have the intimacy of a quartet. Even if you layer and layer and layered it to sound like a huge orchestra, it will still feel intimate and you'll be able to have those kind of, you know, we use these little contact mics, bridge mics that go on the instruments. So you can hear like the bow on the strings and the finger, you can hear everything and then yeah, we have that, and then we have the big Atmos mics above and everything. So it's it's pretty amazing. But and it was a lot of layering. So we have uh, I don't know we have one of our tracks I think is like 120 layers because you have 19 mics per take, you know, and then we're layering on top of that. So it's it's it was fascinating um, in that regard. It's incredibly powerful. I I loved it. Loved it. Yeah, it was it was amazing to do, and they were incredible to work with. Um, we did a session early where we kind of just played with them to see what kind of sounds we could create, and then Dave worked with that to kind of refine how what he had done on the computer should translate to the actual recording sessions, and then we edited a lot. Natalia, I wanted to ask you, um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> as you were shooting the film, obviously you're gathering. You're gathering sound while you're shooting as well. Um, and how much of what we hear in the final film is actually captured as you were shooting? And and how much was sound design that was sort of created after the fact? And where I'm going, where I'm going with this is I really want to hear your sort of philosophy on the role of impressionistic sound design in documentary filmmaking. Cause I think it's a really creatively rich 
concept. I worked on a film a couple films ago called The Night Watchman. Uh, it's much more of a traditional documentary. It's shot in one cemetery. And I worked with my sound designer, who's, who's done the last few films with me, um, Alejandro de Casa. And he added all these foleys. And I was like, but this is a documentary. Like, how can you foley my documentary? <laughs> and I justified it back then in my mind because I was working by myself. And so I just had, you know, my little camera with a shotgun mic. I would occasionally be able to like position a, a love somewhere, a radio mic. But it was so limiting what I could do working alone that I thought, well, this gives me the ability to kind of pretend I had a sound person with me. <laughs> so to me, I was like, okay. And then when we were doing the credits, I remember thinking like, well, do we put the Foley artists in our credits? Or is that like, <laughs> you know, from a documentary, like stripping all your secrets away. Um, now I feel, my, I made a fiction film after, so I feel much more comfortable with Foley's. Um, but what's interesting with the things that we shot was one was there's so much variety that um, we couldn't exactly just kind of have one approach to everything that we did. Right. And then um, a lot of the places we shot, uh, the sound was terrible. So some like we shot at this, the largest indoor vertical farm. Um, and we went with a sound person and, and had them record a lot of wild sounds and like just get details and everything. And that space is actually so loud that the sound is a little bit not usable. Like you can never really get a clean detail. Um, you can't really just record it and then put it in your movie and think that it's going to actually sound like that space. It just becomes a kind of... A well, because as a, as a human being, when you're in the space experiencing it, your brain is choosing yeah. on things to focus on, right? right? And so in a way, like you have to do that for the audience. Right. So a lot of it is fabricated. A lot. So we, we did record sound everywhere we went. Um, but then we had to rebuild a lot of the sound. I, there's no sin in this. You're, it's, 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 uh, I've, I've, I, I feel like. I don't issue anymore. <laughs> I get it though. When I, I, I was so naive to the whole post-production process, having never done it before. When after the Foley pass happened, I remember watching it and I was, I had a nervous breakdown. I was like, I, I hate the film so much. You've just, it's been murdered with sound. You know, suddenly it's like, bang, bang, crap. Like all these silent, carefully silent moments. I was like, what's happening? You know, so then it was like, a, then, but then there was something fun I found in the moment after that of then being able to look at the raw materials and go, okay, now, now this is when the creativity happens because now you can choose what you hear at any given moment. And, you know, similarly, we were throwing realism out the window. So it was about, you know, it was about an expressionistic decisions. Um, yeah. So I, I, prefer to, I prefer to talk about that as you're using sound to reveal a deeper truth, right? Yes. So I could, it's, <laughs> it's a poetic version of truth. <laughs> Which that's is right. like, that's how, you, that's how you do it, right? It's not real, but you reveal truth through being not real. Who said that? Some people so Rebecca, I want to dig into what you just said a little bit too, because one of the things that, um, and I, I have the benefit because I watched both of your films back to back yesterday <laughs> to prepare, to prepare for our conversation. Um, <clears throat> and I was struck again, <clears throat> again, you know, you're using sound design so impressionistically in the film and we haven't even talked about what you're doing visually, which I want to get into as well. But, you know, 
these are all really kind of sophisticated post-production, well, production and post-production techniques. And I'm curious, you know, this is your debut film as a director. Where did you learn all this magical stuff about how to use sound? And of course, like you made your job, all, you know, even harder by not having a traditional score, musical score, to, because all those things that you would normally do to tell an audience, like this is a, you know, reinforce the tension by having tense music. And you didn't have any of that to fall back on. So I'm just curious where, like, how did, where did you learn all this? It was, it's, it's remarkable, the, the, the sure-footedness. I suppose it's a, I mean, well, thank you. But um, I, you know, it's like, it's, it's this, it's like taste. Right, I I don't know why I like one thing over another thing. I just I just know that this is my my way of making this movie, and I had a very, you know, from the the moment I wrote the first draft of the script, which was nearly fifteen years ago, I um, I knew a lot about it. Like I knew I knew how I what how I wanted it to feel. I knew how I wanted it to look. I knew shots that are actually in the movie, shockingly, but I. And I, I, don't, I don't really have an answer for that. I suppose it comes from watching a lot of movies, you know, dreaming about being a filmmaker for my whole life. Um, but you can talk about all that stuff ad infinitum, but I think ultimately it comes down to a gut thing. You, you, look, you look at a picture and you're like, does this, does this do it for me or does, or does it not? And everyone has their own version of what does it for them. So if you trust that, then you, you make something that's yours. I, I I agree totally with you. I think you know what what struck me was that I, I think there are a lot of writer directors who have made dozens of films who don't seem to have the sophistication in terms of their taste level of what you were doing with sound and picture. So it was it was really I had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you both about that. You mentioned fifteen years, um, and I what for both of you the question why for for each of you why this particular film and why now. I didn't take 15 years, though. <laughs> yeah, but you had to have two kids to make the film. Yeah, but I needed the kids to make the film. You <laughs> <laughs> to get that out of the way first. Yeah, and, and they, the film is so inspired by the kids. And I wouldn't have made this film had I not had kids. I would have made some other kind of film. Um, but for me, it was very much just being a, a new mother in San Francisco, which was new to me, um, kind of in this tech world. Yeah, and I think um, having made a fiction film before, I also came to this one with a lot of kind of freedom and courage. Like, there's nothing I was really afraid of anymore, you know, in terms of technically or crew or production size or anything like that. Why this film now? I mean, I suppose it was probably 13 years ago. Let's call it 13 years ago. Some of it, 15 is just a rounder number, so I keep saying 15, but realistically it was probably 13. Um, so I got given a book when I was sort of grappling with something very personal to me, which is, you know, an understanding that in, of something in my family, um, you know, here I, here I am, this very white presenting person going through the world with all the privileges that, that that affords, understanding that my Mother came from Detroit, you know, not in, far away from my upbringing, as you can imagine. And she was raised as white by her father, who was white passing African-American. Mm. 
And he was probably raised by two parents who were probably also white passing. We just, honestly, we don't know. And for so long, the story in my family was sort of, maybe he did, maybe he wasn't, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. I became increasingly fascinated with it. And this book was a way of processing it for me. So it was very personal when I read the book. It, it just struck a chord with me and I understood it. And I don't, uh, I don't really process anything very well in my life unless I do something creative with it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's like I have to, you know, so I wrote the script purely for that reason. It wasn't really because I thought I would make it. I mean, I was, you know, 26 or whatever. I was like, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I know I want to make films. But as I was writing that screenplay then, I was like, well, it's going to be, it's going to be 4-3 and it's going to be black and white and it's going to have this sort of, you know, it's going to have this very subtle, restrained feel to it. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to do that? I don't know what I'm doing. I'll do, I'll do that as like my fourth or fifth film. And that plus the fact that every time I showed it to anyone, everyone always said to me, well, it's, it's wonderful. What a fantastic script. You'll never get it made. Which was tough, you know. Thankfully, the world is changing. Um, and as I got older, I wrote other scripts. I thought about making other films. But I kept coming back to this one because this is the one that I knew exactly how to do. Like, I was like, I know this shot for shot. Like, get, let me add it. And, uh, and then I had a baby, funnily enough, that you brought up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of made it, it made a slight difference to me because having a baby left me with this real sort of like, well, you know, perspective shift, whatever part of me that was holding back, I was like, well, I don't worry anymore. I just going to make the thing that I know how to, that I know I want to make. Um, yeah. I'd always thought of it like, um, like when you give birth, it gives you kind of courage to face pain. Like I, yeah. none of you are afraid of like, I got through that. So yeah, it's like, well, I can do that. I mean, like how bad could this possibly be? I'm just going to be <laughs> Yeah. I think that, that that extends into like what you feel you can do in life, you know? Like, yeah, I yeah. do think that. I do think that, you know, and also it, it, the timing was a lot to do with, you know, Tessa and Ruth signing on, certain factors, Forrest Whitaker and Nina Yang coming on board. And, you know, and I had another producer, Margot Hand, who was sort of stuck by me the whole time. And, you know, we went through so many hurdles and, you know, it's going to go tomorrow. No, it's not. It's going to go in a year. It's, I mean, for years it went on like that, you know, for a good five, the last five years where it's happening, it's not happening, it's happening, it's not happening. And always I got told, if you decide to make it in color, then you can make it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, you made it as hard as possible for yourself by black and white, four by three, no score. Like you, I didn't really tell anyone about the no score or the four <laughs> by three until really late in the day. I was like, I'll just keep that one quiet. <laughs> they don't need to know that. They don't need to know that. <laughs> well, I, you know, as I said, I watched both the films back to back yesterday, and and obviously when we, you know, just to reveal the process a little bit. Sundance sends us a number of films to take a look at for the fellowship every year, every in the fall. And, um, and we, we picked, it was interesting. We have a little team that looks at the movies and both you, you were both selected by unanimous acclamation, by the way. Um, but you know, you were both doing something really powerful that we all responded to, but I didn't really realize until I watched the movies back to back 
that you're both really exploring this theme of alienation and where we fit in the world and society. And, you know, you're doing it through, Rebecca, you're doing it through sort of a racial lens and also a time period and a class lens as well. And Natalia, you're 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 posing that really beautiful question that you said was always at the heart of the film, which is, you know, is is my is is my baby going to love the technology more than he loves me? Um, and it the it just has such profound implications. Both of what you're you know, you're exploring with these films, and they're they're just remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you started saying like our films are so different, and yet I think when I think about the kind of filmmaking I align with. Like, it's not that I just align with documentary films. I think there's something right. about Rebecca's film and its formality, the the contract or the relationship that she's asking of the audience is the same thing that I'm looking for. Like, I want my audience to work, to be engaged, to inform and like all those things. And I think it's, um, I think we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice when we categorize in these kind of the documentary world and the fiction world, and no, it would be more because um, it's definitely I watch your film and I see so much of the things that inspire me and that I think about in my own filmmaking. Likewise, likewise, exactly that, exactly that. Yeah, the categorizations are you know, it's, it's funny, but it's all just a way of trying to understand stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Natalia, you use the you use the word uh, formalism, um, and I, I had a note to myself um, to to discuss that with both of you because it's so important to both of your films. You know, um, I don't know. You know, I, I, Rebecca, I think I can ca count the number of handheld shots in this film in your film on one hand. You know, it's there. It's it's that all at the end. Yeah, just in that one scene. And they really ref they re they reflect her psychological state, right? But she's also, you know, Irene in your film is trying so hard to control her environment, even to the extent that you know one of the major arguments that she has with her husband is, is about what they will and won't discuss with the boys about what's happening with the racial situation in the country. And and Natalia, you you have these unbelievably beautiful, very formula, very uh, very formal compositions in your frame, the way you use horizontal and vertical lines. And it's just so, it's so powerful. And I, I just want to ask you both to talk about the role of formalism in, in your work and, and how, how that can actually be liberating for the audience. It's, it's so sort of difficult to put kind of names on it because I, like I said earlier, I sort of just, I sort of dreamed this on in my head. And from my perspective, it was the only way you could do it. Yeah. Like, you know, the, and I think you, what you said is is accurate. You know, Irene is a character. She can she can organize the NAACP dance, but she can't actually talk about it. You know, she she can't. She's full of these contradictions. And I mean, it's the great strength of the novel that you assume it's about the character that is passing, being bound by that, which she is, but in many ways, she's the most free. And the character that you are with is in denial, in so many layers of denial. And so it just felt to me that a form, I mean, I like, I like that kind of filmmaking anyway. I love the films that I love and inspire me and have that quality. And 
it, it is for me a dream space and a space for poetry and it is an art form and you know how you express that it's got to be about the composition of the shot it doesn't mean that I, everything's is it was necessarily restrained up until the moment that it's not for very deliberate reasons. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I suppose it is, it is freeing in a way. I mean, I always remember saying to Tessa and Ruth at a certain point in pre-production, you know, I said, look, I'm an actor. I know how this goes. And there are the directors that, that you come onto a set and they're like, let's just be free and organic and we'll find it. And the camera will follow you. I was like, this isn't going to be that movie. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, like, the I'm camera's going to be here and it's a lock off shot and we're not. We're going to do this scene in one shot and it's going to, you're going to have to hit these marks. Um, and I'm giving you these parameters within those parameters. I don't care. Like go wild, be free, give yourself all the emotional freedom you can muster. I'm giving you this, this, this is the, these are the, the boundaries. Um, and I think that was sort of liberating in a way. I think it, it, they knew, I mean, I think they would have known regardless because they're brilliant, but they knew what film they were in, you know, and they, they reflected that and they, there's a, was a sort of, I mean, certainly I found as an actor, I'm much freer if I know what I'm doing with my hands and my body. And then I can just access whatever emotions come up, you know, and I'm, if I'm given too much freedom, then I don't know what, to, I don't know what to do with it. And I think that's true of filmmaking. I think that's true of everything. Yeah. Natalia, do you want to, you want to add in on that? Yeah. I think in this film, uh, you know, it's all, it's, it's a visual film. There's not really a story or it's a, a visual essay and, and sound essay, but um, our main element is the image. And so you have to, in a way, be formal about it because we're using it. That's all we're using in a way to tell you something or to, show you the world in a different way so it's yeah every shot's meticulously composed and thought about and and shot um in that regard much more like fiction like we don't just kind of run off with our little cameras and grab and shoot things <laughs> you know we shooting with a big bigger equipment and um just slowly and setting up and but thinking about the frame a lot and then the editing also thinking about how you can formally move between spaces and how you can formally echo uh, totally different contents, but context, but echo something that you had seen before um, and therefore start to create association. I wanted to ask you about, um, I think, you know, in, in users, the, there's, there's, there's so many sequences that, that, are, that are sticking with me, but I'm particularly haunted by the close-ups of the kids as they're playing games and as they're on their screens. It's really, um, it's, and it's really heartbreaking in a way. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you specifically how you accomplish those sequences in terms of like, where did you put the camera? Like, how did you, cause it feels like the kids are looking directly into the lens almost. They are, they are. Um, so that was one of the first ideas I had was that when I wanted to make a film that looked at technology, but kind of the, the images you can immediately think of in your head. is like, I go to the airport and everybody's on a cell phone or looking at a laptop or, um, I didn't want to do that kind of critique of people like, Oh, look at those people out there all on their screens, not living life or, mm -hmm. In those images, we know they're in those images, and to our benefit, they're in our kind of collective imaginary. So what I wanted was how do you create that feeling that when you live in a world where the other person is never really looking at you, 
right? The other person is, is you think they're looking at you, but they're actually elsewhere. Um, and so what we did is we used a teleprompter. Um, so it's not that sophisticated, but we had to do a little bit of rigging to make it work. And then a lot of patience because the kids, we started shooting our first, we call them screen portraits. And our first one of my little kid is, was like a week after he could hold his head up. So really, yeah, wow. I mean, we don't use screens with our kids. So that was the other thing is that that time in front of the screen for them was pretty big, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was super important to me. And it's at one point I thought I would do them with a lot of people. And then eventually I just felt like watching the kids kind of landing on them throughout the film and seeing them grow up a little bit would just, it would say what I wanted to say. I'm curious, Natalia, for you about the way you play with tone, because you're really, you're dealing with, you're, you're experiencing some hugely existential like issues and the, you know, the, our role with, you know, our, the way we use technology and the, 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 the effect that it has on us. Watching the film, I felt very soothed, almost like it was like an ASMR video. Um, and like, for instance, that particular sequence, like it's mesmerizing watching the kids and then I felt very sad. And then I thought, well, this is really terrible what technology is doing to us. These kids are lost. These and then I was like, well, wait a second. I'm watching this on a screen. I'm in this too, right? So I'm curious, like, that. did you, were you consciously trying to sort of kind of soothe the audience and not like kind of lull them into thinking these big thoughts? Yeah. Without, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that, to me, it's a function of editing. Right, so those shots are there forever, right? <laughs> so it allows you to go through all those different thoughts, right? If it were there for just the amount of time for you to register what, what it was, right? Like, oh, kid are playing a computer game or watching a screen, that would be that. But they stay on there for quite a while and a lot of the shots are, are long for that. And it's exactly for that reason to kind of um, give space to the viewer, but the, it, this doesn't quite describe what I mean because it's not a kind of open space to do whatever you want. It's like, how do you catch the viewer within this space that you want them to kind of bounce around your walls and think about the ideas that you're trying to articulate within the film. Um, but the kind of progression of thoughts that you just had where you were like, oh, there's a kid and oh, that's what I'm doing. And that's exactly the kind of experience that I want the viewer to have. Um, not just in the shots of the kids, but throughout the film, there are these kind of super long takes. Um, and I'm interested in that. I love that just to play with duration and to think about it as a kind of making the cut become an almost kind of narrative element the moment that the, the image cuts. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself, because you've sustained for so long, becomes an action. You know, or a, yeah. You, you, yeah, you mentioned editing. And Rebecca, I'm curious, you know, you also, I would not, I would not categorize passing as a fast cut film. No. You, <laughs> you definitely you know, you linger and you let things unfold. So that was, did you, was that pacing immediately obvious to you in the editing room or did it take some time to kind of find have, the right? You must have shot for it also. Yes. Yeah. I, a lot of it was shot for, I mean, there are some scenes where there's only one, there's only one setup, you know, that you don't have a, an option. Um, uh, quite a few actually, but I, yeah, I, I always thought it was going to be that way. I For two reasons. I mean, all the reasons, actually, Natalia, I really, that resonated very strongly with me, everything that you were just saying, because I, I, 
I find that fascinating, like how, you know, a shot can be fascinating for two seconds, but it can be sort of life-changing after 10. It's like, it's like there's something in that that's very, very powerful. And I think it's, you know, like, for me, it's becoming the biggest difference between TV and film. Like TV is just a beautifully shot these days, but people never sit in a shot and it kind of makes me crazy. I'm like, but that was a great shot. Why didn't you just stay there for a while? You know, and I, so I thought about that a lot going into this. I knew that that would be my style for sure. But it's also like a, 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 a facet of having to try and create unease and tension. I think that's that's a way that you can do that. And also none of the characters ever say what they mean. Like there's no plot and everyone is actually saying something else when they're saying something quite banal. And the only way that I could really allow the audience to catch up with that is if you allowed space um, for contemplation to really let it resonate with you in many different ways. And I think that the virtue, I hope the virtue of the film is that it means a lot of different things to many different people. And I wanted there to be time for everyone to have their version of it. So for both of you, <clears throat> this was a first experience having access to Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos technology. So I want to take a few minutes and kind of ask you both kind of like what, you know, what was exciting to you about the possibility of having access to that technology? How did you use it? What were you able to accomplish that you might not have been? Let's talk about Dolby Vision first. So um, the images and, um, you know, Rebecca, obviously, you know, Dolby Vision, high contrast ratio, uh, the, the, the difference between the, the darks and the, the highlights uh, is something that you really, you really explore in that formalism. Uh, and I'm just curious to hear how that experience was for you and what, what vision Dolby Vision brought to, brought to passing for you. Well, this just brings everything into slightly into more focus, really, doesn't it? I mean, it's just sort of, and it's, it's, it's great to really fine tune it for, for when you want it to be a certain way. You know, I, a strength of using black and white for this movie was always that we were able to use shadow and tone to be representational. You know, it's, it is already an abstraction, so there's already this sense of, you know, nobody, nobody is black and white, like nobody is black and white in life, and yet somehow these categories are very important to us. And so actually being able to play with the grayscale a little bit and to shift when the darks are dark and when the lights are light and make people and places and everything shift in accordance with that was 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 great and I think very important to the movie. Um, it was always important to, for me to have a, a, a contrasty look um, just because, you know, it, it sort of, it works and also because of the tradition of black and white and, and it looks beautiful. But it was also important to me to have a sort of, a kind of ambiguous look to it, if that makes sense. It's sort of like very you're not quite sure if we're in something that's real or imagined and uh, being able to make everything that much crisper when I needed it to be and that much more foggy when I needed it to be was helped, I think, enormously. Natalia, what about users, uh, Dolby Vision and how you used it? Uh, well, it was a very interesting experience because we're working remotely. We couldn't be in our color correction because of COVID. Were you in yours? No, I mean, we, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> So we kind of built our own system. We had support to get the equipment. 
Um, because Natalia, I just wanted to interject. You actually, you did your color correction in, in Mexico City, right? That's where right. the facility was, but you're in San Francisco. So yeah. you're, you're monitoring it remotely, right? Wow. Right. So which we could do live for all the HDR Dolby Vision part. And that worked pretty well. Like it has its frustrating things to not be there, but we had a great monitor. So we could really trust that we were seeing the right thing. And um, it was an interest. I have a big commitment to coloring on the screen because <laughs> I imagine my films in a theater and I've always wanted to color in a theater. So I always have, and you see things. So, so if it was just a interesting experience to kind of be on a monitor and to have this, kind of uh, deep palette, right? That you could push so far in so many directions and to figure out how you're gonna tame that palette, right? Because it it took me a while to kind of understand that like, it's not about making a film that looks like a Dolby Vision film. It's about using that tool to take your film and kind of shape it into, like use all its pieces to kind of get its fullness. Um, so that process was, challenging. It was a different process than I've been used to because I'd never done a kind of HDR Dolby Vision correction. Um, and in the end, like I, I think I fought it a little bit for a while. And then when we had to do our SDR passes, I was like, but the HDR is so much better. <laughs> uh, no one's going to see it yet. <laughs> so, can you, can you talk really a little bit about the, um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the wildfire sequence? I I can't wait to see that in Dolby Vision. I, I I haven't I haven't had the opportunity yet, but I presume it's going to be pretty spectacular. It, it is. I mean, I think what's interesting. My I feel like my cinematographer would talk about it better um, because we're also pushing the camera to its limit, right? Those kind of when you're shooting that fire and when we get so close into the fire, like both in terms of color and in terms of brightness, and we're at night. So you have the kind, you're just pushing the limits of the camera of what it can do. And then you're taking that into the correction space and trying to, you know, see what your camera actually gave you and then see how you can use the color correction to, to, to work with it. And it's an interesting scene to me because, um, you know, it's one fire scene, but to me it has three parts. And it has kind of the first is this kind of fantastical world that I imagine you kind of see the fire as a child might, like a like fireflies or a kind of magical quality without the threat. And then like this middle section where we're really in the fire and kind of it's like violence and gravity and and its fierceness and awesomeness is kind of there for you. And then for me in the third part, we kind of go back into a fantastical world, but more how an adult might see it as a kind of awesome, like in the real sense of the world, like we're like a the power of nature and, and it's so beautiful. And so what we're playing with throughout those three things is kind of the, the realism of, of the thing that you're looking at, right? So when you then take the idea of realism into color, how do you, how do you play with that? So it was interesting. It was, it was I hope we landed in the right place. <laughs> Feels like it, uh, um, I think we did. Um, but it's definitely an interesting space in which to think about that, you know, especially how the Dolby Vision allowed us to work with the color and the, especially the fire and the amount of detail that you could get in those brights versus when you kind of let it really kind of pop out of the screen a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It was it was challenging. <laughs> in a good way, in a good way, I hope. In an awesome way, it's, it's really good, but it's not like you just pop it in and, and these things come out. It's a. Uh, 
it's a whole new it's vision work and and to get from the camera to your screen is is interesting well, we created the Dolby Institute Fellowship originally to give filmmakers access to Dolby Atmos as a sound technology. And I want to ask you both about how you use that. In the, and one of the reasons why we created this in conjunction with Sundance is because I think, you know, especially originally Dolby Atmos was sort of like, it was kind of perceived as <clears throat> a tool for big budget Hollywood studio tentpole movies with big action sequences and a bunch of stuff flying around all over the place. But I have always been really surprised and delighted by how filmmakers use it, its specificity for quiet moments um, and to set moods. So I'd love for both of you just to talk a little bit about Dolby Atmos and how you use it in, in your films. Well, I would say my first references of Dolby Atmos films were Roma. I got to see it in mm -hmm. Atmos and uh, Aquarella. And both Aquarella, yeah. Love both the films. And um, it's what made me really want to do a film in Atmos. And what interested me for us is my film plays a lot with scale and pers and kind of disorienting you in terms of like, are you underwater? Are you over something, under something? Is it small? Is it big? And the Dolby Atmos kind of gives you the ability to, to do that sonically, right? So for example, one of the things that I was interested in was how could we take those um, bridge mics, you know, on the Kronos, um, quartet on their instruments, how could we put those into the Atmos sound so that that small thing suddenly fills the space and kind of envelops you in it. Um, and that was, and that was amazing to get to work with that and, in, and to get to just mix it in a, on an Atmos stage, right? So to spend those two weeks sitting in a room with someone like Laura Hirschberg, you know, the pilot at the <laughs> console, um, bringing it to life into the space, you know, and, and playing with like, where, where do you see that? And, and where is it affecting you when it's in the ceiling versus on the sides or up front or when it moves or doesn't move? And how does that kind of change your whole experience of the, what you're seeing, right? And how it kind of becomes part of your, your world, it, it surrounds you. Um, so it was, it was awesome. I, I, I it was, it was, it's truly, it was truly awesome to do that. And that stage was just a, just a thrilling moment for me. I mean, it's like, I've sort of touched on this before, but there's a scene in the movie that was so fun for me to do on the Atmos, which was right, the, actually the last scene, the party scene, and the bit just before it. For a long time while we were filming it, I kept saying to people, this scene is sort of like the sound after snow has fallen. <laughs> and everyone was like, I don't know, so you just mean quiet? And I was like, no, no, there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference. Like when, when thick snow falls and then it stops, even wherever you are in a city, there's this sort of muted quality that's mm -hmm. very precise and calm and a little bit frightening. And I was like, that is what this scene is. And... It's a, the calm before the storm, after the storm, but before the other storm. Um, and I, that moment where Irene gets up at the party and she walks over to have a cigarette out the window and then she opens the window and we go from inside the party, we go from actually inside her head to inside the party to then her just blocking out the sound of everything and just having her moment with the snow and the cigarette forever. I was fixating about how to get that quality. How do we shift that? So how do we how do we weave in and out between? Because pretty soon after that, we go back to a shot of Claire, which is not 
which is subjective. It's not, I mean, objective rather. It's not subjective. It's not, Irene's not looking at her. Claire is looking at Irene. And we've got to come out of that headspace into this other space. But really being able to place those sounds and make this sort of interior muffled psychological space and then make this other space and have them work together. And also the silence right at the end when everyone's left being very, having a very particular quality. You know, it took a long time for us to hit on that. And it was really the Atmos that really brought it home. Um, It was great. Well, I know we're running a little short on time, but Rebecca, I just want to follow up. You had mentioned earlier, I wanted to ask you about Irene and Brian and, and Brian's house and mm. how you and how you used Atmos there because you do yeah. so very effectively. Well, you, it's it's it was you know you're meant to feel a bit claustrophobic, like she's stuck in these routines of her life and she's stuck inside this house and and in many ways it's a it's a prison of her own making. You know, it's her safety bubble. It's the she doesn't want to know anything else outside of it. So it was important to create that sort of not just claustrophobia, but also at times for it to feel safe. Um, and so we were able with Atmos to position everything so that even if you're not looking at the house, you sort of know where everything is environmentally. Like, you know where the phone is, you know where the kitchen is, you know where Zulina, you know, who's the maid, was working, you know where the children are above her head. And they're all sort of surrounding her at any given moment, where the clock is. And those... And to really be able to put those in the space, just put you right in there. And they're even more, um, they sort of feel like they're squishing her, those sounds, which was exactly as intended. Especially, I mean, I, I especially love being able to position the children directly above her head. Or even when they're outside and she's inside, you can, you know that they're, you get the sense of life on the street. Similarly with the trumpet across the, the, the street, that, that was really helped by Amos. I mean, we were literally able to, you know, Jacob and I had quite a long conversation where was like, is he, he's opposite four houses down to the right. You know? <laughs> that's where the trumpet player is. And that's where we're placing him. <laughs> we were like able to draw the street that doesn't really exist. And it's like, you know, it was great. It was great. I agree with you. And one of the things that really I loved about the way you use the technology was you really use it very creatively to um, fill out the world outside the frame and to communicate a much bigger, you know, uh, world that you didn't have to show, you were able to just give the audience the experience of it with the sound. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, 1920s, like, is quite a, you know, notoriously loud time, roaring 20s, et cetera. And I, I thought it was something interesting about just showing that on the periphery, but never actually being in that place, being in something quite different. Well, uh, let's wrap up. I just wanted to... Um, express my gratitude. Uh, we were so thrilled with the way both of you uh, used these technologies that you had access to, Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos, in your films in, in different but very, very powerful ways. It was really a pleasure, you know, getting to work with you on this and seeing, so like, this is the fun part of my job, is to give these tools to filmmakers and let them run off and see what they do with it. And you both of you were amazing and certainly uh, just gave us a great, a great experience with it. Rebecca Hall with Passing, Natalia Almada with Users. Um, thank you so much. It was really, it was a great experience working with you on bringing these amazing films to the screen. Thank you. Thank you. No, on the contrary. Great. <laughs>
Well, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, this is Glenn Kaiser with the Dolby Institute. And uh, uh, go uh, when you have the chance, uh, if you haven't already on the Sundance platform, please see these movies, seek them out. And hopefully we'll be able to all see them in a cinema one day soon. Thanks very much. Again, I'd like to thank Rebecca Hall and Natalia Almada for joining us this week. If you enjoy this series, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes or on Apple or Google podcast apps. It really helps raise awareness for the show and helps us build an audience. And please subscribe to our new dedicated podcast feed, which you can find via the links in the show notes. And you will not want to miss our next episode coming up in two weeks. I'm going to be speaking with Pete Doctor the chief creative officer of Pixar and the co-writer and director of their amazing new film, Soul, as well as producer Dana Murray uh, about the movie. And it's a really fun conversation that we had in conjunction with our friends at the New York Film Festival, Film at Lincoln Center, and the Artist Academy there. You won't want to miss it, so subscribe now. We'll see you again in two weeks. Until then, thank you again for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab podcast, which is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. The producer and editor of the show is Michael Coleman. The executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Copywriting is by Fayette Fox. Our production support comes from uh, Taylor Hines. And our Dolby Institute intern is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>